Chapter Thirteen of Countdown by Kurt Becker, S.J. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Thirteen. The three young people walked out of a corridor through a door that swung shut behind them and were suddenly in the open air. With the strong, bright sun of early afternoon on their bodies, they headed across the field. After a few hundred feet, Nancy stopped and with a smile said, Look around. Ned looked. Behind him was a hill, without the slightest sign of human habitation anywhere, just the waving foot-high blades of the young growing wheat, exactly the color of the clothes they wore. A hundred feet away, against the hillside, they'd be practically invisible. That way, Andy waved. Ned obediently looked in the direction Andy indicated, but saw nothing except a fairly large hill, part of which had been gnawed away by a great steam shovel, which now stood idle and dusty in the bright sunlight. Near the mechanical monster was a cluster of small prefabricated buildings, with a wisp of smoke trailing idly from the stovepipe chimney atop one of them. From the gnawed-out hillside a perfectly straight road sloped down toward the gate that opened on Route 87, not far from Dumas. "'You know,' Andy said, his eyes on the gnawed-out hillside, "'there are times when I think Steve Westlake's just a little bit too smart to be real.' "'You mean?' "'Yep, that's the hangar and machine shop under that hill.' The road's a landing strip. You'd never think it, would you? No, Ned agreed. I never would. Let's hope, Nancy broke in, her face sober. Nobody else would, either. Come on. Andy started forward with long, swinging strides. The young wheat reached the edge of the scraped-out area that indicated where the gnawed-out section of the hill had been, and the raw mineral earth was underfoot. Only it wasn't just dirt. It was dun-colored concrete, hard and solid, which felt granite hard through the thin soles of Ned's sandals. Yet it bore all the tooth-marks of the great shovel, with gnashes and pebbles, ruts and small stones of every shape, fixed immovably beneath their feet. Then they were at the base of the perpendicular cut, and when Andy reached out and shifted a stone which jutted out, a crack appeared suddenly before them, six feet high, just wide enough to admit a man. With his heart pounding, Ned followed Nancy into the dark interior of the hill, hearing the sound of Andy's footsteps behind him. Somewhere a solid, oily click sounded in the complete darkness. Then suddenly, far above them, fluorescent lights, then a spaghetti came to life and shed a cold, bluish radiance upon them. "'There she is,' Andy said, pride and awe in his voice, the Santa Maria. Ned looked, and the disappointment must have been plain on his face, because Nancy looked at him and smiled. "'It doesn't look the way you thought, Ned, does it?' she said softly. "'Not exactly.' Ned felt himself blushing. "'I know. I was disappointed, too,' Nancy said quietly. "'I thought a spaceship ought to look sort of like a silver bullet, with a needle nose and big tail fins standing straight up and pointing to the sky. This thing looks like a sort of overgrown plane, doesn't it?' "'That's right,' Ned agreed, puzzled. "'It looks like a big bomber with a long nose. Just a plane, like the ones you see all the time.' "'Not like this you don't see them all the time,' Andy replied. You think it's familiar because you saw a model of it in my room. Yeah, Ned breathed. That's right. On your desk, I remember. Okay, Andy grinned. Now that you've had your disappointment, come along and get a close view. This baby has a few surprises for you. They moved toward it, and they walked and walked and walked. Ned realized that the room was so vast that he had not been able to grasp the size of it or of the plane itself. The plane was huge. It was monstrous. The wheels on which it stood were taller than he was. The bottom of the fuselage was easily thirty feet above his head, and easily fifty feet in diameter. 
The leading edge of the vast wings was thicker than he was tall, and the three pairs of notulas that hung from each of them were as long as a greyhound bus, and each was easily eight feet in diameter. The ship looked, he thought, like an ocean liner. How could it ever get off the ground, let alone go hurtling out toward the stars? Andy fiddled with some mechanism in the hub of the wheel. Above them an opening appeared in the vast wing, and a square platform descended smoothly toward them. "'Come aboard?' Andy asked, his bright eyes searching Ned's face. "'Let old Professor Baldwin show you around and explain the sights? Okay, hang on to me.' He touched the button, and the platform rose silently upward, with Andy clinging to the pole to which it was attached, and the others clinging to him. In seconds they were inside the giant machine. "'This ship,' said Andy, with a sort of mock solemnity that gradually ceased to be put on, and became real, is not intended to go shooting out of the atmosphere and come shooting back at full speed. It is meant to fly at a reasonable rate to the highest point at which jet engines can support it, and then take off through the immensely thinner air above that, as an acceleration of one gravity, until it reaches escape velocity and can leave the earth behind. "'Goodness sake, Andy,' his sister complained. "'You sound like somebody at a public meeting.' "'You ever try explaining it?' Andy demanded. "'Big deal.' She tossed her head lightly and smiled at Ned, her green eyes aglow with intelligence. "'A rocket zooms up at terrific acceleration, and then it coasts. That's what they call free-fall. Both those things make trouble. First of all, the acceleration is crushing, and in free-fall there isn't any gravity, so things just float around. Here on Earth, when you take a drink, the gravity pulls the water down into your stomach. In free-fall, you'd have to get the water down by muscle power. You ever try pushing water around?' Ned admitted he hadn't. It's not easy. This ship takes care of it. We take off in an acceleration of one gravity, which means that every second will be going thirty-two feet a second faster than the previous second. Only instead of coasting, we keep accelerating at one gravity until we're halfway to wherever we're going. Then we turn the ship around so that the tail is pointing to the target and use the engine as a brake. That way we decelerate at a force of one gravity. It takes us the rest of the trip to slow down to practically a standstill, and when we arrive we're going so slowly that there isn't any re-entry problem. The acceleration and the deceleration take the place of gravity, so that everything has weight all the time except during the few minutes it takes to swing the ship around. Clever, isn't it? She paused and looked at Ned to see whether he understood and was apparently satisfied. Dad says there's a whole difference of approach. The rockets are weapons, first and foremost. This is first and foremost a ship built for travel and exploration. Yeah, Andy chimed in eagerly. That's right. Wait till you see the stuff we have. Air purifiers, water reclaimers, a kitchen, like in a plane. Everything. Name it and we have it. Even an infirmary. He patted the wall beside him. It's much cozier than a Jupiter. I suppose so, Ned agreed doubtfully. It's just that I'm so used to pictures of vanguards and Jupiters and so on that it just doesn't seem possible. It is, though, Andy assured him. Come along. I'll prove it to you. Where do you see the pictures they took in space during one of the test flights? You mean it's already been up? Five times. No, six, isn't it, Nan? Six, she said positively. This is the corridor on the leading edge of the wings, she explained. We've got rooms here for fifteen passengers on each wing, thirty if they double up. See? She slid open a narrow door and showed Ned a room about eight feet long, eight feet wide, and six feet high. In the center of the room a hammock-like cot was attached to sturdy rods that ran from floor to ceiling. A series of numbered lockers formed the walls. See that door in the ceiling? 
Ned followed the pointing finger and nodded. When we're away from Earth, under acceleration, the tail of the ship will be down, and the nose up, because the acceleration takes the place of gravity, you know. So this quarter will be above the rooms, because it's along the leading edge of the wing. Up under the top of the wing, there's another quarter like this one, only at right angles to us, and that door opens on it, so whoever uses this room won't have to climb up out of it. Beyond these rooms are water tanks, air tanks, and fuel tanks. They're all about this size, but there are more of them. The wing's almost thirty yards wide where we're standing. Come along to the control room, Andy said eagerly, leading the way. Then he stopped and put his hand on a metal sphere, which Ned judged to be about eight feet in diameter, and which was crisscrossed by bands of metal, tooth-like cogs. This, Andy stated proudly, is the heart of the ship. Inside here are two big gyroscopes. See those teeth? How could I miss them? All around this big dome, right under this floor, are cogs, so that we can turn the gyros and point them in any direction. What for? Ned asked. When those gyros are going, they just refuse to move anywhere. They just stay in the same position. Don't kid me, Ned said. I know that can't be right. I got a lecture on gyros in school. They tend to move at right angles to the direction of their spin. Go to the head of the class. So if two gyros spin in opposite directions, and they're the same size, they cancel out the torque and keep pointing steadily in the same direction, right? I suppose so. Two gyros here, spinning in opposite directions. This dome keeps pointing right where it's aimed, just like a compass. The whole ship can swing around the gyros and aim in any direction. That is what we steer by. Ned nodded, understanding dimly, and they turned left. Passenger cabin A, announced Nancy. There's another one beyond the gyros, toward the back. That's the dining room. This one's the social club. Looks like a passenger plane with a single seat facing the aisle, Ned remarked. Uh-uh, she shook her head. Look again. These swivel. The seat will always be down, no matter which way is up. The floor and ceiling will be walls at some time. That's why the floor has those slats in it. Ladder rungs. Bug it? Yeah, Ned breathed. I see. Clever. And here, Andy slid back a door at the end of the corridor, is the control room. Watch it. There's a ladder here with fourteen steps. He descended, and they followed. It was a large room, like the observation car on the end of a train, except three times as roomy. There were large windows on all sides, and instruments. Andy pointed to the seats. Pilot, co-pilot, two navigators. These are special chairs. There are moving gym balls. See? He sat on one and worked some control on the wide armrest. The chair rose smoothly up several feet, and swung around until it was in front of one of the windows on the side of the room, facing right instead of forward. All right, Nancy said a little impatiently. Now we know you can fly a chair. Where are those pictures? Just a minute, I'll get them. The chair glided back to its original position, and he scrambled out of it. Here's the plane controls. He waved at an imposing array of levers and switches. That's the radio and radar panel. How come? Ned asked, struck by a sudden thought, that this ship's made six test flights, and nobody's found out about it. I thought they had radar all the time going around to catch unscheduled flights. Andy grinned in delight. Easy. She absorbs radar waves. They don't bounce. Something about the material she's made of. I can see we have a lot to tell you, boy. Andy opened a cabinet set between two windows and brought out a sheaf of large sheets, two feet wide and three feet long. Take a look. This is what Earth looks like from three hundred miles. Ned looked and felt a strange sense of dizziness. There was a portrait of a huge curved section of the earth with mountains and rivers and the ocean in vivid, wonderful color. 
And these, said Andy in a sort of reverent whisper, are the stars. Ned gasped. Against the black velvet background there were uncounted flecks of light, sharp, clear, infinitely varied in color and size and brilliance. It was breathtaking. It was awesome. Wow, whispered Ned. Any moment you'd almost expect to see God. And then he knew that all the rest of his life he would want to go out there, where this wonder was. Never again would he be able to look at the stars making outside his window through the leafy tunnel of the tree and be satisfied. As long as he lived, he would carry about inside him a restless yearning for this. Reluctantly, he put the picture down and turned away. End of chapter 13